so I felt very proud to be able to say, well, I know how we're going to pay for this. Not knowing, obviously, not understanding that I was speaking, I was telling people things that literally just were not true, things that were impossible. Um, I mean, you can't, when you when they say, well, simply just cut the military budget in half and you can afford all these things. And it's like, okay. Um, so when you cut that military budget in half, like, what do you do with all the people that were employed with that money? <laughs> Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with third-year MMT activist Sam Hollenbeck. Along with my recent guest Amber Griego, Sam is a co-founder of the organization Beyond the Spectrum. Sam and I start by talking about parenting young children in the face of increasingly likely global societal collapse. He then describes his journey through mainstream politics to MMT. This was highlighted by his excitement followed by letdown of both Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders, although for very different reasons. Sam was introduced to MMT by my previous guest, Lana Dell, who spoke with me in episode 15. Lana referred Sam to the online activism group Real Progressives, where he had his light bulb moment in videos with Steve Grumbine and Ellis Winningham. For years before, however, Sam knew something was wrong with his understanding of economics. This is exemplified by his realization that it is simply not possible for the same money to circulate around and around through a community. Although he couldn't put words to it at the time, he knew that there must be an external source of new money in order to keep the economy going, not unlike the go spot on a monopoly board. The second law of thermodynamics states that the entropy of a closed system can only increase. This implies that no system can function in the long term unless it is powered by some external energy, which obviously must come from some external system. Perpetual motion machines do not exist. Sam lives in a New York town bordering Pennsylvania, which he calls a rusted out post-industrial wasteland. Sam volunteers with his 10-year-old daughter at an addiction recovery center called Truth Farm. You can find Truth Farm online at truthpharm.org. The lack of jobs, and more specifically a job guarantee, in addition to a lack of health care and education and the terrible burden of private debt, is a big reason that people are driven to drugs and guns in the first place. 
It's also a major reason why his town is a rusted out wasteland and why Truth Farm is needed at all. Like so many charitable organizations, Truth Farm does not have the staff or funding necessary to properly serve those who are desperate for its services. A job guarantee would provide that staffing and funding. At the same time, it would make Truth Farm much less necessary because it would have less clients and would therefore need less staff and funding. In addition to receiving a socially inclusive wage, those who might have been clients would simply have more positive things to focus on. What I take most from my conversation with Sam, however, is the idea of balance, and I mean that in the broadest sense. First, balance between academic study and theory versus practical experience. Sam felt that he was missing what was happening in his own community, so he chose to spend much of his time volunteering locally. Although this meant less time for academic study, it allowed him to see the mass suffering caused by a half century of neoliberal era policies up close and personal. This experience provides critical context for those academic concepts and transforms those numbers and statistics into actual human beings. Balance is also doing what it takes to survive now, to pay this month's rent, to cancel this month's rent. Sharing the knowledge that the issuer could pay all rent if only they wanted is not helpful to someone facing potential eviction. Even if our federal representatives did choose to pay all rent, it would take a substantial amount of time before it affected the lives of those who are desperate today. Two balance-related decisions I've made for my podcast is first to interview both academics and lay people. It's important to know how lay people perceive and are affected by the academic concepts. This is especially true given how MMT academics have necessarily chosen to spread the knowledge among the general public, primarily via blogs and social media. I've also decided to not just discuss academic concepts, but also how their personal lives led them to and are affected by MMT. This final element was inspired by late UMKC professor Fred Lee's book, A History of Heterodox Economics. My recent interview with Pakistani PhD economist Asad Zaman taught me that Western education strongly discourages balance. It pushes students to diving headlong into a single subject, resulting in the exclusion of all others. This is a negative and even devastating philosophy in the sense that without confirming that a particular theory applies to the real world, that theory becomes progressively more and more detached from reality. What's devastating is when those in power use those theories to implement policy that affects millions. Not so coincidentally, the MMT project is deliberately and decidedly interdisciplinary. Finally, balance can not only be achieved as an individual, but also as a collective. The universe of podcasts entirely or largely dedicated to MMT is very diverse. MMT podcast focuses on academic concepts. Money on the Left discusses MMT through an interdisciplinary lens. Macro and Cheese balances between MMT and progressive politics. 
a new podcast called Superstructure discusses politics and other topics through an MMT lens. My own podcast balances between academic concepts and personal stories. We all choose our different ways to balance both what we do and how we do it. All are important in their own ways. No individual can do it all. No individual is responsible for preventing climate and societal collapse. As a team, however, we can refer and defer to each other as and when necessary. We can realize our own limitations and ask for help and rely on others when we need it. When we happen to have more energy and time, we can assist those who need help even when they don't ask for it. And of course, we could choose to join together, stand up, and demand better in order to give our children even a small shot at living out a full life with even a modicum of the privilege that we enjoy today. You can contact me on Twitter or Facebook, and you can email me at activistmmt at gmail.com. If you're enjoying Activist MMT even a fraction as much as I enjoy creating it, and if you're safe and secure and happen to be lucky enough to have some public deficit kicking around in your pocket, I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll get exclusive content and updates, several days of early access to every episode, and for some, super early access, weeks and sometimes even months in advance. You can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Whatever you can afford, I would be very grateful. Thank you. And now on to my conversation with Sam Hollenbeck. This is part one of a two-part conversation. So I ended up actually working out a change in schedule with my work, with my job. You know, I actually got to stay home for like 12. Well, I was working on the weekends and I was and then I was home during the week doing the uh, home education with my kids. So I got to be Mr. Hollenbeck for uh, 12 weeks. Remote uh, teacher's aid is how I used to joke around. But um, mm-hmm. that was a trip. Uh, it's like there was a meme that was going around that said uh, it was like a, a lady had on her on her minivan written, you lied. My kids were not a delight to have in school. <laughs> but no, it's, it's hard because... And it's honestly, it's the same type of it's in order to be successful with with educating your kids. I mean, it's um, it's like you don't think about the consequences as much when you get frustrated until you've been doing it like all day, every day. When you get to the end of a day where you've been trying, you know, you're trying to get through this math work and and, uh, and you know, the more technical stuff. And, and um, it was just it was very clear you know, that I was, I was going to have to, you have to really bring it down to their level. And it's. But how old are your kids? So my, my son is five and my daughter's 10. Okay. I have a yeah, 10 so, and a 13 year old. I have 10 and 13 year old boys. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, so my, my little guy, yeah, he just finished preschool or pre-K okay. and um, 
you know, my daughter just finished fourth grade. So um, it was funny because like, as I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm going through like, say like going back to the Medicare for all example, and you know, saying like, look, you know, that there's a lot of people who, who would love to go to the doctor, but they can't afford to, and that we know how to fix it. You know, the good news is we know how to fix it. We know how to set up a program that would be nationwide to provide health care to every single person, regardless of how much money they make. Mm-hmm. Um, I said, you know, and then I had to, but it gave me the opportunity to explain to her that, you know, that it, it should be as simple as, hey, that's a really good idea. Everybody in the House, they pass their version of the bill. Everybody in the Senate, they they pass their version of the bill. They toss it back and forth, make the little tweaks, send it to the president, and he signs it. It should be no big deal. Yeah, and, and you know, that's, but that's unfortunately, for, obviously, it's relatively simple for you know a ten year old to understand that. And I actually have a. a let me ask uh, one more parenting question, and then we'll sort of you know formally rewind and and um, how do you as a parent deal with climate change. And what I mean by that is how do you balance or think about, you know, allowing your kids just to be kids and not burdening them with needless hardships. But at least in my opinion, the path that we're on, the second half of their lives are going to be living hell, you know, with climate collapse and all that. If assuming we don't change our path, we could change our path, but at this rate, I'm not very hopeful of that. So how do you as a parent, you know, you know, I, I grew up, I grew up with, don't worry about it. Everything's fine. Um, you know, I would ask about a, a walking bridge across a highway. And then, you know, I was told instead of, I, I was told they would never build it unless it would stay, you know, unless it was safe. You know, basically don't ask questions, you know, don't worry your pretty little head. Um, and I, I don't want to do that for my kids. I want them, I want them to be kids, but I want to balance that with, you know, second half of your lives, brace for impact, you know? So I'm wondering, do you think about that kind of thing at all regarding climate change or? I think about it a lot. <laughs> I do. I actually, like every time I'm, see, I, I listen to a lot of audio material. I listen, I listen to audio books and podcasts uh, as often as I can, while I, while I'm working or while I'm driving, and you know, so all these things that are happening, and we're having all these, I'm listening to all these conversations, and I do think about my daughter and my son, and I it, because they know, like my daughter knows that that we have to protect the environment, you know, and she knows, she knows it from more from like, um, I would say currently where my daughter is right now is about where I was when I was younger in watching like Captain Planet. Okay. So like we know about Captain Planet. Is that what you said? Captain Planet. You ever see that cartoon? Uh, vaguely familiar, but no, I guess oh, not. Man. It's so good. So it's this cartoon. <laughs> it's it's this cartoon from the '90s, and it's got this like superhero dude. He's like blue skin, green hair. He's basically the protector of Earth, and you know every and and he's got this team of like kids, 
that they come across these uh, these these five kids and in, in you know they're ethnically diverse and they each have like this like ring that they call him whenever uh, they're trying to tackle some environmental catastrophe and whenever they get in a little bit over their heads that's when they call Captain Planet <laughs> and you know and he comes down and he saves the day. You know, there's always a lesson to be learned and it's always some like, you know, it's always some dirty businessman trying to pollute in the river or something like that. And it was really, I mean, I loved, I loved it. So that's when I first started learning about it and I was probably my kid's age, but, um, that's probably where she is right now. As far as like, she knows that we have to protect the environment because of, cause we want clean air, land and water. And because we have to protect habitats for the animals, you know, and then a a healthy environment means healthy people. But it's like, so how do you really broach a subject like climate change and mass migration and droughts and mass migration, mass migration? Yeah. Right. How do you do that with a 10 year old? You can't really. She's, you know, so it's like. Little tiny bits at a time. I mean, honestly, it's just it comes up so often anyway, you know, it, it's so that it you just got to play it by ear. And uh, every kid's different, really. I mean, mm-hmm. it's important to move in that direction. You know, you want them to know I, you know, nothing against my parents, but there was a lot that I didn't know when I was. I mean, I went through my whole 20s completely ignorant i mean i didn't even i didn't even start paying attention probably until i was 30 years old to anything politics and i definitely don't want my kids to be like that um i'm not trying to inundate inundate them with information and i'm not trying to scare them i don't Mm -hmm. want my kids growing up to be you know to think they're growing up into the apocalypse but um wow they may be growing up into the (laughs) apocalypse apocalypse. yeah of course but uh, just just one thought it's like I would think of, you know, you're going to need – you want a better planet. You need to – well, see, I was about to say it's, it's up to you. We need, we need you to fight for it, which empowers her. So how do, you, yeah. how do you empower her but do so in a way that it's like you know, you're part of a team as, a part, as opposed to this is all on you individually? Actually, you know what? That's interesting. That's like neoliberalism. It's, you know, yeah. it's all up to you. It's only you can solve climate collapse. No, you, we're, you we're, and your damn single use plastics, Jeff. Yeah. It's all on you you. Right, right, right. No, it, that's, that's really, that is the issue is, is, um, I do try to, I mean, I have these conversations with her as often as I can. I, and I don't want her to feel overwhelmed by it. But I do, but that is, that's the constant is it's, and there's no answer. That's the thing is there's no answer. There's nothing I could say to you. Um, there's nothing I could say to any parent. There's nothing I could say to myself that is going to give me the path forward or a, you know, a, a go-to strategy for every time I talk to my kids or every time this comes up, it's really, it's, it's different day by day. I mean, it could be based on how mature she's being that day. <laughs> Sometimes mm-hmm. she's not. Sometimes she wants to just be a kid, and she's being goofy and silly. And you can't. You know, you're not going to get through. You know that you can talk about things, and you know. But there's other days where she's very serious. Yeah. 
<laughs> and she wants you to know how how responsible she is and she's mm-hmm. she's you know she listens very carefully to everything you say and she asks mm-hmm. questions and those are you know we get to make a little bit more progress on those kind of days and it's just it's fun That's it's cool. an adventure it really is and, and 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 i hope i don't want her to fear the day that that she comes into adulthood and has to start making these decisions um and, you know and 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 that she has to uh, exist and operate and and take care of this world. Like I don't want her to fear that day. I want her to be ready for it. And you know she's already doing a lot to get involved, even on her own. Like not not necessarily with climate change, um, but with activism in general. Like and and with just volunteering and helping out. That's good. Uh, yeah, she yeah. So she's uh, you know the first one of the first things she did actually was. Um, she joined, my wife actually volunteers at an animal shelter. Hmm. And, uh, so just like once, once a week they have their animal shelter night and they go down and they clean cages and they clean litter boxes and they just do a lot of, you know, you know, the manual work, the elbow grease, the things that, uh, you know, they just, that just to take, take things off their plate basically. And, uh, yeah, she's been, she's, so she's been really into that and she's done a lot of like raising money for them. She's been, um, she got involved with, uh, some of the harm reduction work that I was doing with, uh, substance, um, uh, substance use disorder, uh, awareness and, and education on the issues and solutions there. Um, we had some local activism events that she got involved in. You know, she so she picks these things up and she want she wants to be involved. And That's I great. couldn't be happy. I know. And it's like That's I don't great. have to convince her, like, hey, come on now, we're gonna come down and do our part now. Come on. No, she asks me, Hey, hmm. so are we doing anything more with Truth Farm today? Hey, are we doing anything more at the animal shelter this week? Or like That's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, well, that that makes that certainly makes it a lot easier. That's cool. I, I obviously I, we've we've never spoken anything near about kids before. So that's interesting. It's a totally different side of you. Um, okay. Well, why don't we back up? Why don't we Why don't we back up and uh, uh, hello, Sam Hollenbeck. How you doing? Not bad, Jeff. How are you? I'm good. It is really good to. Uh, I haven't. I've. Sp- seen your typewritten words we've chatted quite a bit but i haven't seen you since uh, the 2018 conference um so it's been quite a while uh, yeah thank you for coming on uh would you please introduce yourself and can you describe your life and your thinking before you discovered mmt and and before you discovered economics at all okay sure um yeah i'm sam hollenbeck i live in binghamton new york which is in the southern tier of New York along the southern uh, New York border with PA. And um, so I was never an academic. I actually, I grew up uh, the son of two laborers. I grew up in a trailer park way out in the sticks I, I attempted to go to college for a little while. It wasn't really for me, so I never really entered into uh, advanced studies or academia. I, I ended up just being a laborer myself for pretty much, or yeah, for my whole life. Uh, you know, my first job was in a grocery store. I worked in uh, several different retail establishments and and 
and now I'm in a warehouse. I'm in industrial like supply chain. I would drive a forklift every day. But on what I started to do was I started getting in these conversations with people at work. And I realized that I was so outclassed, like these people were talking to me about politics and I didn't know anything about politics. I was, I was, I mean, I was mostly politically ignorant until I was, you know, into my thirties. Um, I used to browse Reddit and I used to get into the political conversations there. And I was, I guess what you call a lurker and, um, uh, I didn't really know enough to get involved in any of the conversations. I just read a lot. You know, I would spend like where I was just or go, you, you know, you go down a rabbit hole, you, you come across something online and you, you know, about something that you didn't know before and you spend all night learning about it. And, uh, you know, so I'd have these conversations with people uh, as best I could from, from, from what I had learned on my own by reading these message boards. And at that point in time, I knew enough to know that Democrats were the good guys. Republicans mm-hmm. are the bad guys. Mm. Okay. At that point in my life, I knew that Republicans were the business party and the Democrats were the good guys who were for unions and labor <laughs> And this is what I had. I mean, I knew this. I knew this to be this way. Uh, I could fight to the death with anybody about why a Democrat was better than a Republican any day of the week. Mm-hmm. And so, so it, you know, for for a very long time, that's all I knew. And you know, so we watched a lot of MSNBC because that was the, you know, that was the extra good guys. They're the really liberal ones. Mm-hmm. And I knew that Fox News was just for you know, conservatives and people that were less informed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember my, my wife and I were renting and I was sitting downstairs with my landlord and he was a black man and we were talking. It was the day of the Democratic primary in 2008. 2008. Wow. Um. I had asked I had asked my 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 landlord that you know if he was planning on voting and he said he probably was and I said well you know there's um Barack Obama and he's black and he has a really good chance of winning like he's really popular and he's do you know like he could actually do this and so we decided to walk down together to the to the school to go vote in the primary together and I remember wow. feeling so very proud of myself because here I am like walking down the street with with my black neighbor and we're about to go vote for the first potentially the first black president. And I remember feeling so accomplished and like I like I did it like I'm like a super good guy and like look what mm-hmm. we're doing and like racism is basically over now. Right. <laughs> 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 like, like that's what out? this means, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it wasn't long until um, I remember sitting on. I was sitting out on the front porch. I had some friends over, and uh, you know, more my age, and some people were talking, and somebody brought up Obama. Oh, he's, oh yeah, it's so great though that we have Obama, so much better than Bush. And I remember 
I remember stopping and I, and I kind of looked around. I said, yeah, but you know what, though? I said, but what's he really done? Like, remember all that stuff he said he was going to do? He talked about, like, ending corruption and and reining in the, the lobbyists. And So what year is this around now? How, how many years yeah, into yeah, so this was, around? This was probably maybe 2010. Okay. And it was like, so the, you know, the the majority was ev- was evaporating, I, I believe, at that point, right? And yeah. so there's there was all this time. And it seemed like, and I remember feeling so disappointed that all the things that he talked about, I mean, he, well, he basically said, okay, folks, we got it from here. You can go home now. And I said, I remember sitting on that porch and just saying, yeah, so what's he actually done? All these things that he said he was going to do, you know, it just kind of seems like business as usual. And I kind of knew, I kind of knew then and there that something was wrong yeah, so by the time we got far enough into Obama's second term to realize, okay, this, this, you know, and then we had, well, we had, it wasn't just the the lack of wins, we also had these disappointments, like the things that he was changing with, um, <clears throat> that were affecting our privacy, our digital privacy, you mm-hmm. know, and the fact that he, he was con- still continuing the, you know, the drone programs, all the innocent civilians that were dying. And it was just, I was so disgusted by that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were way more into politics than I, than I was. I was not into politics until I discovered Bernie at all. So you, you had, you have years, quite a few years ahead of me. I mean, I voted for Obama and I was very excited when he won. I remember and like, you know, gave some stranger a hug and, and you know, it felt, it felt really good. I mean, I knew that he wasn't great because nothing was nothing was changing dramatically for the better during that time. But I wasn't aware like you were. Um, I actually wasn't really aware of how bad Obama was until I heard Jimmy Dore give a rant uh, maybe two years ago of, you know, turn two wars into seven, never put any bankers in jail, ended habeas corpus um, and all the things that you had that you had listed recently. And then Isha on on Twitter, if you're familiar with Isha Legal, Isha Krishnaswamy, her Twitter name is Isha Legal. Um, she has a, a like a 400 tweet thread on it's called the Obama oh, no. years, and it's just it's every single every single one has a receipt of something bad that Obama did. It's really bad. I mean, really, really bad. <laughs> so it's I'd be, just I'd be like happy you know, to check that out. That's not yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's really enlightening. And so between those two things, like Jimmy Dore and this Obama years thread, it's like, I mean, Trump sucks, and he's awful. And I, you know, I actually was just talking about this with my kids a couple of days ago. I'm one of my kids a couple of days ago. Uh, I don't, I don't want to have dinner with Trump, and I don't want him to be my president. Obama, I would love to have dinner with Obama. I don't want him to be my president either. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, they both suck. One's nice and one's not. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, I know it's not exactly that, com- <laughs> that comparable. That's that, that simplistic of a comparison, but yeah, no, Obama was awful. And, and actually yeah. in a way worse because he made you, f- he was stroking your cheek while he was screwing you. At yes. least Trump is, at yes. least Trump is honest. It, it, it was like, 
yeah, we knew we knew Trump was going to be a train wreck. And the the letdown that we felt from Trump being even worse than we thought he was going to be was like not nearly. I mean, you're talking for, with Obama, we went from being feeling like I mean, he was the great hope. He this was it. This is what things are going to get better now. And it went from there to where it did, which was, you know, sitting there. He's a lame duck president. The elections already happened in 26 in November 2016. But I remember like what Standing Rock was reaching its climax. Hmm. Okay. All of the all of the veterans from all mm-hmm. across the country what 3000 veterans were all on mm-hmm. their way to go to go stand against this fascist police force that was brutalizing people at, yep. at Standing Rock and it was like and everybody and I mean even my conservative friends were watching this and and supporting these these veterans I mean cuz what I mean could you imagine if there was if we had images of these well-decorated veterans standing in a line and being brutalized by our police force like this yep. over, over, over water. And it was like, you know, the, the whole country was watching and holding their breath and waiting. They said, surely this is his moment. He's got nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. Surely this is the time that he's going to step in and he's going to, come down in favor of the people for once and he's gonna finally be the man that we all know him to be somewhere inside and freaking wasn't but he, <laughs> he was didn't. He, no he did but but he did but he did it in a really he did it in a really sneaky i mean he no 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 he gave the appearance that he was because yes. that was the day that obama said i'm revoking the permit for this pipeline yep well he was an executive for, order right that can easily be oh, reversed. Oh, is that what it was? Okay, yeah. So then Trump could just easily revoke that executive order instead of doing it in a way right. that Which would was not one be of his, I think it, it, it neutered the momentum of the movement that was building. And that's and so so really it was effective. Yep. You know, from the from the neoliberal standpoint, uh-huh. it was it was very effective. Um, yeah, we're such suckers. Oh my gosh, we're such suckers. I remember was, feeling uh, exhilarated as well. Yeah. They just completely pulled the wall, the rug out from under us. Completely. Yeah. Just so so perfect, exactly like Super Tuesday, the night before Super Tuesday. The yeah. neoliberal celebration the night before, right after burning, you know, crushed in Nevada. Uh, you know, it's just, it doesn't matter how successful you feel. They just pull the rug right out from under you. But in this case, they tricked us because it felt like a victory. Right. And see, well, you know, what a lot of people don't understand about the these neoliberals, I mean, they're all business people. So, and you know, business people, they're very, very well planned and they have contingencies and they have charts, you know, where like, these are this is these are the actions that we're going to take. Here's all the things. I mean, just like just like you would if you were running a business. What are all the things that could happen to change this? What are all the things that could interfere with these plants? Well, here's what, what would be the best contingency. So, there, I mean, it's like it's they're always going to be a step ahead of us. Like some people have this big grandiose, you know, like you see like a lot of the conspiracy theorist type people that have these like 
where everything has an explanation and everything has a well it's not every not everything is a master plan to take over the world but wow. a lot of it is planned i mean not planned they like they have so much like, resources they don't really have to plan they have, well, they have unlimited resources so they're always at the ready to just you know flick a switch and and their you know millions of dollars can just make things happen very quickly yeah and it doesn't and it doesn't take and when i say plan it's not like um you know they have this like roadmap set in stone kind of thing it's like i mean how long does it take for these people that are very, very i mean these people like you said they already have access to the resources they already have their hands on all the levers of power you know, and, and anything that changes, I mean, how long does it take for them to discuss it and come up with a new plan if they didn't already have a contingency plan? It's very mm-hmm. difficult to 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 beat these people. Um, you know, it's and and I feel like we're not going to really beat them, so to speak, until we really do get as organized as the, as they are. You know, it's so easy for them and it feels it feel it makes us feel insignificant to be tricked like that, the way we were with Standing Rock and the way we were with with the twenty twenty Democratic primary. Um mm-hmm. you know, at least at least the the way the way the twenty sixteen primary played out, it felt a little bit more organic because I felt like the movement behind Bernie genuinely caught the establishment off guard. So you could kind of see the way that they scrambled and changed the rules as they went. You know, you could tell that they were trying to keep up with the unprecedented uh, success and the, the the record-breaking numbers that the, the Bernie campaign was pulling in back then even, mm-hmm. even as a relatively unknown, just watching him skyrocket. And they had to react to that this time around. They It was like they were ready. It's like they basically had four years to sit and be like, okay. So we know he's going to run again. again. (laughs) Yeah. We know he's going to run again. Here's all the thing. Here's all the ways we're going to make it difficult, you know, and, and, you know, here's our contingencies. And so it was, it was like, it was no surprise to me at all what happened to Bernie this time around. And I dare, I say, I never, I never really allowed myself to get too optimistic. There was a moment where I believe we all felt it, where we all felt there is a chance here. When he won Nevada, Nevada. yeah. Oh my God, there was, yeah, was a moment. Insane. It was yeah. insane, and it and it was completely artificial. I mean, it was real. It was real, but the foundation on which it was built didn't exist. So they could make that floor disappear like they did. So with such, you know, with one little, you know, shindig the night before Super Tuesday. And that's all it took to disintegrate the entire foundation from underneath that very substantial victory. Um, let, all right, so so let's let's uh, start to bring economics into this. So obviously, right. I, I would guess that Bernie somehow influenced you, or somehow had some was some factor in your becoming aware of economics at all, and then of MMT, which I can only guess that you learned from real progressives. So. Yeah. Right. So after, um, so after the election of 2016, I was very lost, like a lot of people. I mean, there was a lot of us that were just kind of floundering around and we didn't really know what to do. Like we knew, we knew that the so-called resistance 
um, you know, the marches and the, some of the things that people were resisting Trump on, we knew that 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 we knew that the, a lot of that stuff was superficial. We knew that there wasn't um, much progress, real actual progress to be found. Um, and that we weren't ever actually going to address any real issues. And it was mm-hmm. just going to be about Trump. And, I, right. and, and Bernie told us, you know, you have to organize. And it's not going to happen because Bernie Sanders said it should happen. It's going to happen when people start to organize for real. And then you can start to put, you can start to strategize and you can start putting continuous pressure where it belongs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I spent a long time just kind of floundering around um, and trying to find something to get involved in. You know, I was so proud of myself to say, Mm. all we, all we have to do is cut Mm -hmm. the military budget. (laughs) And, yeah, I can, totally, I can totally identify. I actually, and during the 2016 election, I actually gave presentations. I called them Bernie 101, and they were they were great. I mean, they were it was really it was a good memory. But unfortunately, like 25 to 30 percent of that presentation was how are you going to pay for it? Which is exactly what you just said. You cut the military. You know, do, do this and do this, and you know, me- basically memorized. I memorized the document on Bernie's website. How are you going to pay for it? He had a whole whole page about that so yeah go on it's yeah. so i can totally really no it just I, I just i just felt so so proud to know these answers yeah because by then um yeah so bernie's website well and then there was another one i don't know that it was made by him or that it was just made by fans of bernie because there's 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 his campaign website and then there's feel the burn.org mm-hmm. and which which has again it's like it breaks down all the issues um, gives summaries and, and, and very well sourced summaries on each, I believe. And, uh, you know, and it talks about a lot of, about a lot of, so I felt very proud to be able to say, well, I know how we're going to pay for this. Not knowing, obviously not understanding that I was speaking, I was telling people things that literally just were not true, things that were impossible. Um, I mean, you can't, when you, when they say, well, simply just cut the, military budget in half and you can afford all these things and it's like okay um so when you cut that military budget in half like what do you do with all the people that were employed with that money <laughs> like oh what do wow they do? wow <laughs> you know? how insightful like, I, how you know? insightful yeah that's really insightful that's a really insightful way of looking at it you cut the budget in half wow so with that 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 the real world consequences of cutting the military budget in half. I never thought of that before. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something, well, that's something, that's not something I was thinking then, but that's something that I came to understand obviously because of, because of MMT. And it was like, you know, so I remember, see, I I remember thinking that things were wrong about, about the way we thought about economics, but I never, I, it wasn't like something tangible that I could really put, my finger on or that I could really explain to somebody. Cause it was like, I remember thinking in my head, like it doesn't make any sense. Like if, so if we, if, if, every, if people are talking about running a balanced budget, so if the amount of money that was just circulating around between like businesses and their revenue, and then they have to pay employees and they have to pay for all their stuff and they have to, and this money keeps just going around and round or like, 
how is that even possible that the same amount of money could just continuously go around and round and round? And it just seems <laughs> like there would have to be it that I didn't know what a flow was or a stock was or any of that stuff. And I still barely know, but I mean, I knew that, that, that that's there interesting had to too. Be. So if it, if it keeps on cycling around like that, then it's impossible for anyone to get wealthy unless they take it from someone else. Well, right. And it's like, it's like, so, so there's money exiting. It's like, I could tell that there's, there's money exiting because it's, it's ending up in the bank accounts of, of rich people. And if we're, you know, we're running and if we're, and if the idea is to run a a balanced budget, like it just doesn't, it just, I knew it just didn't make any sense. Like, and I didn't, quite understand it even really from the macro sense i think the idea i had in my head was like i was picturing like a town okay let's say you have a town and it's out in the middle of nowhere and it's like there's only x amount of dollars that exist in this town and everybody's you got these businesses and you got all these people who want to work and it's like so how does that even happen so they pay the people and the people turn around and give the money back to the businesses to buy the goods and then the same money goes and pays those people again and I'm like that doesn't even, you know what i mean it's like i know that's a very crude way of thinking about it but i could tell that it's like it doesn't make sense to think of things in that kind of stagnant terminology like of like or that stagnant framing of like you know i i knew that there was just that it was not that the way the economy functions it was just not like there was there was a major discrepancy between the way I understood it and and I just I just knew that it it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So these are the questions that you had in the lead up to discovering right. MMT. Okay, right. So and it was in a thread where I was talking about, you know, and I was proudly proclaiming about, you know, raising taxes on the wealthiest Americans and, uh, you know, cutting military and, and, and things like that in order to find the money. And it was, um, actually it was Lana Dell who Mm. was the first person to ever break the news to me that (laughs) actually we don't have to, we don't have to do any of that stuff. We could just do it. So what do you mean? Uh, you know, so yeah, it was, in, you know, and, um, you know, she turned me on to what well, she says, well, actually this group, uh, real progressives. I'm like, oh yeah, I know them. And, uh, she pointed me towards these Ellis Winningham videos and it was over from there. I mean, it was, wow. um, I, I, I remember, um, you know, spending countless, countless hours, just everything I did, I had my headphones in or I had my phone set up next to me, folding laundry, cooking dinner, didn't matter what, so I had videos of Stephen Ellis playing, uh, learning, you know, learning all of the um, the ins and outs of, of you know, just basic 101 level, uh, you know, it was mind-blowing. <laughs> so you really had the right questions. Like, you, you were, like you were like dancing on the edge of understanding with these questions that you had. And I know all it took was a little, you know, this little push to watch, you know, to have Lana push you to these Ellison videos. And well, it it being, yes, being that I was already starting to question the things that didn't make sense to me. uh, I, you know, I, I was ripe for the information. I was yeah, ripe yeah. for the education. It was definitely, it didn't take a whole lot of convincing. Like I wasn't resistant mm-hmm. to it. I remember not being resistant at all really. Cause it just made sense. 
Yeah, but you like, you had but you had an awareness of it. Like you had some awareness of like this is not like you had an awareness of economics and that this couple of aspects really you could tell that there was something off. When when I started, which was around the I don't I don't know actually what time are you talking about now? Like around when did Lana introduce you to Ellis? Mm, so this was probably early 2017 wow okay okay yeah, well i just remember uh i i interviewed lana quite a while ago now and she actually i remember it was also 2017 so that was probably pretty you were probably one of the earlier ones that she introduced this to which is pretty cool yeah i mean it, like again it was just the background of of just curiosity really um yeah. and you know and and so so one of the great things about modern monetary theory is that uh, everybody's out to try to prove it wrong. So it's like it's like you almost actually if you if you hang out in the right areas, you don't even really have to uh, go out of your way really to to research this stuff. It's like you you see like for every question that you could possibly think to challenge MMT and say, cause yeah, I mean, it's, it's understandable. It's like, it sounds too good to be true. That's the thing. It's like, I remember that was one of the first things when I learned MMT and I said, no way. I'm like, at first I yeah. was like, are you sh like for real? Like you could just literally just do that. You could literally just do it. You could just spend the money. And did, obviously you know, <laughs> did you know that it's possible to not be abused? Did you even understand that that was a possibility? It's no, possible it's like, to not be abused and not just not be abused. It's actually possible to be treated well. Is that amazing or what? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's like, so, so it's like, so really all this time we've been asking for this stuff and, you know, y'all are looking at us like with your hands kind of like, you know, you're just kind of slapping your thighs going like, Sorry, I it's just the money's just not there. Would you? I mean, mm -hmm. look, I want Medicare for all. I want health care or universal health care just as much as you do. But mm -hmm. we got to make some tough choices. And it's like, <laughs> wait a minute, yep. wait a minute. So for real, we, all that stuff was was BS. Like, and that's what like, um, you know, I resonated a lot with you know with with like Steve Grumbine's message at that time. It was like I was very very angry when I really actually learned. I was like like this whole time really this whole time <laughs> like not only that really not only that i've been lied to but that i've been such a sucker yeah, to actually it's... believe it without question and uh, actually just a, a quick aside that that i i've always i've always said i've i'm an empty vessel i was an empty vessel when i learned this and so i had no questions i had no skepticism about it you know but and but at the same time i spent a lot of effort memorizing bernie's how are you going to pay for it document so that I could give, you know, this Bernie one-on-one -on -one thing and basically argue with people when I was mostly was for the effort of phone banking. You know, I was just a big volunteer on the campaign. And in addition, I did this presentation thing, but there was the recent town hall, uh, maybe two months before the campaign ended that, that, uh, on MSNBC where the guy, I can't remember his name, um, mm said, how are you going to, you know, how are you going to pay for it? And Bernie said, I'm glad you asked and handed him a piece of paper. And that piece of paper became a page on his website, which is on his uh, berniesanders.com slash issues. It's still there right now. It's the very first link at the top of the page. How does Bernie pay for his major plans? And before he handed 
uh, oh damn, what's his name? The prominent, ah, I can't think of his name. The the guy who comes from the rich family, like the the Rockefeller Momo. family. No, he comes from the Rockefeller family. Oh, uh, yeah, it'll come to me. But wait, that's that. Starts that with an guy a. was 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 Anderson Anderson yes. uh, Anderson Cooper. Woo. Okay, Anderson <laughs> Cooper did a town hall and said, "How are you going to pay for it?" And Bernie said, "I'm glad you asked. Here's a piece of paper that explains it all." And that became a page on his website. How does Bernie pay for his major plans? Right before that point, though, it was always there since the 2016 campaign. It was on the very bottom of the issues page, and I memorized that document. So. That was my actually, I never thought about this before, but that how are you going to pay for a document by Bernie was my introduction to economics. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it was for a lot of people. And I think, um, and, and here's, here's my, my hindsight, um, hindsight's 2020 is like, so all along I remember hearing, or I remember questioning, like, so we know, you know, af- after I spent enough time with real progressives to learn MMT and I and I watched enough of the videos and, you know, a lot of these videos I had to watch probably like I remember watching the LS 101 interview probably 10 different times. Until, times. Oh, my yeah. God. Seriously. <laughs> and it was and, and it was I mean, worth every minute. And like so, look, you know. Credit words to real progressives and, and, and you know, and Steve Grumbine and, and all the great people that volunteer with real progressives have done an amazing job of forwarding public uh, awareness and, and knowledge of uh, MMT. And so after I had spent enough time with them to really learn this, and, and so everybody questioned, like, so wait a minute, what about Bernie? Now, Bernie has Stephanie Kelton, who was one of the founding, uh, like, one of the original developers of, of the body of knowledge that became modern monetary theory. And he, and this is his like, well, I don't know how do you senior, uh, senior economic advisor. Thank you. And so what, so what gives, why isn't Bernie saying these things? Why is he still sticking with this ridiculous? What we now know to be ridiculous. How are you going to pay for a document? And everybody's like, well, you know, the 3D chess and the strategy and like he's he's playing the long, he's got to stick within the the Overton window and all these excuses. And and I know that it's easy for me to sit here from my armchair and and, you know, say what could have should have been done. But I honestly really do feel like the, the, the public could have handled it. Um, you know, long before I even got involved with like real progressives and MMT and stuff, I was I was in the comment section of my local news Facebook pages quite a bit. And mm. if you've ever spent any time in there, you know what that place is like. Like it's I mean, it's 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 melee. <laughs> it's like and people are just like most things are very binary and everybody's fighting and it's like. And, and you see the way that people are fighting and the things that they're saying to each other. And it's very clear that neither side, quote unquote, side knows really what they're talking about, especially once you learn MMT. Mm-hmm. I want to do it but, wrong this way. No, I want to do it wrong this way. Yes. So, but I remember when, when Bernie's how you going to pay for it was really being scrutinized this time around in the 2020 campaign. People 
these were conservatives. These were like general people that were like, you know, in these news uh, Facebook pages. And even these people were saying that's ridiculous. Even if you were to actually pass like all of these new taxes, no way would it even cover a fraction of everything in Bernie's proposals. It's impossible. You can't do it that way. You're still not going to come up with enough money to pay for Bernie's platform. And they were right. Mm. And if these people, these people who are generally uh, otherwise speaking from, you know, uninformed positions because they're, you know, mainstream media informed positions. If these people can see this, then I know that they're ready for MMT. <laughs> so it's, you know. Interesting. Yeah. So that's like the right questions to ask. Yeah. Right. Because it's like, because like, wow, you're where I was, you know, three, four years or three years ago. Hmm. <laughs> so it, it's, it's, um, I, I feel like it was a, it was a, a great misstep not to, not to at least start introducing MMT concepts um, through the Bernie campaign, you know, but we're all, I mean, no matter what, I mean, you, you, for all, for all the work that's been done to, to spread the word of MMT, I mean, you know, there's still only so much that we can do. Right. Um, and it's like so, somebody in. powerful. Yes. And it's like, and, and so, yeah, so like it or not, it's, it's when it gets brought up in that mainstream uh, spotlight that's our job. That's where our job comes in. So it's like, it's kind of like, we need you to tee it up for us. <laughs> um, uh, the one thing that I think the messaging really works well is, is uh, Randall Ray uh, and Yiva. No, I forgive me. I'm butchering her name. I'm not sure But they just put out a, a short paper, not just a, a good couple months ago. They put out a short paper where one of the where the quote in the paper was it is irrational to fear deficits more than the end of human civilization yeah. or more than the end of the species like that's like you know easy framing it's like we fear we fear man-made concepts more than real right. world you know mass suffering yeah yeah i mean but unfortunately for a lot of the people that you that you speak to out there um you know, they don't, they don't see these things as being man-made concepts. It's like they see that um, you can try to explain to them how arbitrary these numbers are. But when you, when you are really steeped in like the gospel of this, like, uh, you know, of the Orthodox and, and, and you hear that, you know, these limits exist for good reasons to save us from complete and total economic meltdown and that you would be, I mean, it's known, you know, to sound, to set, to borrow, to borrow the line from the Mandalorian. This is the way like, you don't question this. This is, these are the things, you know, these limitations that are set up are, are decades old and they're, you know, they were put there by experts yeah. who know what they're doing. And if you yep. challenge that, if you change that, if you come anywhere near that, you don't know what you're messing with boy. And, right. uh, you know, so they, they, they they believe that to be you know that these aren't just it's an it's axiomatic it, it's unquestionable yeah well so you know like I have I have to have my own way of visualizing a lot of things 
you know, and it helps me sometimes to like draw my own little diagrams and, and things like that in order to, to understand these concepts a little bit more. And, uh, you know, like one of the things that like when you talk about like basically like all money being credit in one way or another, you know, if all the bank loans and all the credit cards were paid back, you know, so all that money would cease to exist in the, in the economy. So and if all federal debt, national debt was paid back, there would be zero dollars in the economy, right? It, it, well, this goes back to your, your original question before you understood MNT, if it's all just cycling around. Right. Um, yeah. Every can of, uh, uh, you know, you learn MNT and it's a can of worms and you, and you spend all your time, you know, focusing on each of those worms and spending a couple months on each of those worms. And then you realize that each of those worms is just another can of worms. It's fractal. Yeah. It never ends. <laughs> it never ends ever. Right. So no, it's like, I'm... it's like, when do you, it's like, I don't understand. It's, it's a struggle. It's a struggle to know what a stopping point is. When you know enough to get by. I had just actually just read the Mosler and four Satter's the uh, natural rate of interest is zero, which is an amazing paper. If you haven't read it, amazing oh, paper. In fact, I would say now that I read it, I'm like, I'm so disappointed that I didn't read this as one of the very first things that I had ever read when I started hmm. learning this stuff. Yeah. Like seriously, yeah. seriously recommend it. And it's, and um, actually Matt says that he, uh, he said that he wrote it, deliberately or maybe he always writes deliberately on a more layperson kind of you know way like less academic way so it's more friendly right. for people who yeah. don't know and that's so that's, we need a lot more of that
Today I talk with third-year MMT activist Sam Hollenbeck. Along with my recent guest Amber Griego, Sam is a co-founder of the organization Beyond the Spectrum. Sam and I start by talking about parenting young children in the face of increasingly likely global societal collapse. He then describes his journey through mainstream politics to MMT. This was highlighted by his excitement followed by letdown of both Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders, although for very different reasons. Sam was introduced to MMT by my previous guest, Lana Dell, who spoke with me in episode 15. Lana referred Sam to the online activism group Real Progressives, where he had his light bulb moment in videos with Steve Grumbine and Ellis Winningham. For years before, however, Sam knew something was wrong with his understanding of economics. This is exemplified by his realization that it is simply not possible for the same money to circulate around and around through a community. Although he couldn't put words to it at the time, he knew that there must be an external source of new money in order to keep the economy going, not unlike the go spot on a monopoly board. The second law of thermodynamics states that the entropy of a closed system can only increase. This implies that no system can function in the long term unless it is powered by some external energy, which obviously must come from some external system. Perpetual motion machines do not exist. Sam lives in a New York town bordering Pennsylvania, which he calls a rusted out post-industrial wasteland. Sam volunteers with his 10-year-old daughter at an addiction recovery center called Truth Farm. You can find Truth Farm online at truthpharm.org. The lack of jobs, and more specifically a job guarantee, in addition to a lack of health care and education and the terrible burden of private debt, is a big reason that people are driven to drugs and guns in the first place. It's also a major reason why his town is a rusted out wasteland and why Truth Farm is needed at all. Like so many charitable organizations, Truth Farm does not have the staff or funding necessary to properly serve those who are desperate for its services. A job guarantee would provide that staffing and funding. At the same time, it would make Truth Farm much less necessary because it would have less clients and would therefore need less staff and funding. In addition to receiving a socially inclusive wage, those who might have been clients would simply have more positive things to focus on. What I take most from my conversation with Sam, however, is the idea of balance, and I mean that in the broadest sense. First, balance between academic study and theory versus practical experience. Sam felt that he was missing what was happening in his own community, so he chose to spend much of his time volunteering locally. Although this meant less time for academic study, it allowed him to see the mass suffering caused by a half century of neoliberal era policies up close and personal. This experience provides critical context for those academic concepts and transforms those numbers and statistics into actual human beings. Balance is also doing what it takes to survive now, to pay this month's rent, to cancel this month's rent. 
sharing the knowledge that the issuer could pay all rent if only they wanted is not helpful to someone facing potential eviction. Even if our federal representatives did choose to pay all rent, it would take a substantial amount of time before it affected the lives of those who are desperate today. Two balance-related decisions I've made for my podcast is first to interview both academics and lay people. It's important to know how lay people perceive and are affected by the academic concepts. This is especially true given how MMT academics have necessarily chosen to spread the knowledge among the general public, primarily via blogs and social media. I've also decided to not just discuss academic concepts, but also how their personal lives led them to and are affected by MMT. This final element was inspired by late UMKC professor Fred Lee's book, A History of Heterodox Economics. My recent interview with Pakistani PhD economist Asad Zaman taught me that Western education strongly discourages balance. It pushes students to diving headlong into a single subject, resulting in the exclusion of all others. This is a negative and even devastating philosophy, in the sense that without confirming that a particular theory applies to the real world, that theory becomes progressively more and more detached from reality. What's devastating is when those in power use those theories to implement policy that affects millions. Not so coincidentally, the MMT project is deliberately and decidedly interdisciplinary. Finally, balance can not only be achieved as an individual, but also as a collective. The universe of podcasts entirely or largely dedicated to MMT is very diverse. MMT podcast focuses on academic concepts. Money on the Left discusses MMT through an interdisciplinary lens. Macro and Cheese balances between MMT and progressive politics. A new podcast called Superstructure discusses politics and other topics through an MMT lens. My own podcast balances between academic concepts and personal stories. We all choose our different ways to balance both what we do and how we do it. All are important in their own ways. No individual can do it all. No individual is responsible for preventing climate and societal collapse. As a team, however, we can refer and defer to each other as and when necessary. We can realize our own limitations and ask for help and rely on others when we need it. When we happen to have more energy and time, we can assist those who need help even when they don't ask for it. And of course, we could choose to join together, stand up, and demand better in order to give our children even a small shot at living out a full life with even a modicum of the privilege that we enjoy today.